Welcome to Broken Law, the podcast about the law, whose interests it serves, and whose it does not. Brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonpartisan nonprofit organization. I'm Lindsay Langholz, Director for Policy and Program at ACS. On today's episode, we're going to discuss Puerto Rico and the many ways in which U.S. law continues to subject the island and other U.S. territories to second-class status. The Supreme Court recently decided, in a relatively unusual 8-to-1 decision, that Puerto Ricans can be denied government benefits despite being U.S. citizens. We'll get into the details of this case and how it is just one in a list in a long line of oppressive measures taken by the United States against its territories. To help explain all of this, I'm joined today by Adriel Cepeda Derriex, senior staff attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union and an expert on the ways in which United States territories are treated differently by the United States government. Adriel, welcome to Broken Law. Thank you, Lindsay. Great to be here today. So good to have you here. Before we dig in on the particulars of the court's recent decision, it would be great to lay a little groundwork for folks on the legal structures that are involved when we talk about the status of Puerto Rico. So what does it mean to be a U.S. territory? And what is the difference between an incorporated and an unincorporated territory, which is a term that got used a lot in this last case? Yes, thank you. That's a, that's a great question and a great place to start. The country has always had territories from the founding. You know, at the start, it's just 13 states, sure, but it also has huge swaths of land that end up being states like Ohio, Indiana. And the country adds more territories as it grows to the point where in 100 years, it's reached the Pacific Ocean. And for most of that period, it was just understood that as the country added new lands, those lands would eventually become states. And the people who live there would become citizens. And Congress had very broad authority to govern those lands, but it was always understood that same rules and the same constraints on Congress in the states generally applied in those uh, national lands. So, for example, in 1879, the Supreme Court says that Congress can't ban the exercise of the Mormon faith in the Utah Territory, which is not yet a state. But that assumption sort of changes in 1901. At the end of the Spanish-American War, the United States annexes Puerto Rico, Guam, and back then the Philippines, even though the Philippines eventually becomes independent. But here's where the story changes, because these territories were somehow different or were perceived as different. And not only were they islands across the sea, but more importantly for the people uh, in power, they were already inhabited. And maybe even more importantly, they were inhabited by people who many understood to just be different. The people who lived there weren't white. They were mostly Hispanic, Black, Pacific Islanders, Asian. They didn't necessarily speak English. And it's then that this idea changes. And the Supreme Court in a series of decisions that I'm sure we'll talk about later, sets up this distinction between incorporated and unincorporated territories. That distinction, you will look uh, through the Constitution, you won't find it. Uh, The Supreme Court sort of makes it up uh, out of whole cloth. And the court says that incorporated territories are those that are on a path to statehood. Meanwhile, unincorporated territories are those that aren't. And the way you know whether something is incorporated or not is because Congress has said so. So since 1901, Puerto Rico, Guam, and then eventually the Northern Mariana Islands, the the U.S. Virgin Islands, and American Samoa have been unincorporated territories. Adriel, I'm wondering what does that distinction mean, being an incorporated, rather being an unincorporated territory for Puerto Ricans? What does that mean for the rights of 
Puerto Ricans, the people who live there um, in their day-to-day lives? Yeah, sure. Good question. It's, I guess the first thing I'll say is in, in broad strokes, the constitutional rights of the people who live in Puerto Rico are the same as, as you know, those that you and I enjoy. People who are born in Puerto Rico, like I did, are born U.S. citizens. And it's it's generally understood that certainly upon moving to the United States, that citizenship is exactly the same. It's um, more of a matter of geography than than being Puerto Rican, for example, that that drives the the problem here. So the short of it is that Congress can legislate for the people of Puerto Rico almost as a state would to govern itself locally. Uh, Puerto Rico and the other territories have a great deal of autonomy to govern their own affairs, but the Supreme Court has made it quite clear that Congress can trump that authority when it wants to. Uh, And that's a a deeply undemocratic situation. Um, And I'll be clear here, again, it's not the fact that you're necessarily Puerto Rican or from or you came from the Virgin Islands. It's the fact that you live in Puerto Rico. I grew up in San Juan. Um, I didn't have a representative, couldn't vote for president. Once I moved to New York, well, that all changed. One other key aspect of the unincorporated territory label, however, that I'll flag is that you'll often hear that only so-called fundamental rights apply in, in the territories. And I say You'll hear, and I kind of hedge that a little bit because I and, and many others, including it seems in the Supreme Court, disagree that that's true. Uh, the fact is that the Supreme Court has never said only fundamental rights apply. If anything, it said the opposite, that the Constitution uh, applies by its own force in the U.S. territories. But the lower courts have unfortunately really latched onto this idea, and it does cause uh, a lot of damage uh, at times. It seems like a great segue to talk about the Supreme Court's most recent decision in United States versus Bayo Madero, which, if I'm recalling correctly, dealt with a person who moved from the continental United States to Puerto Rico and lost benefits because of that move, because of that geography change. Is that right? Could you talk to us a little bit about the particulars of this case and and what was at stake? Sure, that's correct. So United States versus uh, Bayo Madero involved Mr. Jose Bayo Madero, which, whom, as you say, is a U.S. citizen. He lived in New York until 2013. He suffers from a debilitating illness and qualified for supplemental security uh, insurance payments, SSI, while in New York. Um, SSI is a nationally applicable benefit that is, is meant to protect really the most vulnerable uh, people with a disability or, or who are elderly and have limited means. In uh, 2013, he moved to Puerto Rico to be close to family and continued to receive SSI payments by direct deposit into his bank account, uh, unaware, however, that Puerto Rico residents were ineligible for SSI benefits. And then in 2016, the, the government became aware of this oversight, and it not only cut off his benefits, but actually sued him to recover $28,000 it had paid into his account. So Mr. Madero defended against that by saying that denying him SSI benefits just because he lived in Puerto Rico violated his rights to equal protection. And he won twice in the lower courts, uh, at the district court and then at the First Circuit. And as it went to the Supreme Court, the question was quite simply whether the Fifth Amendment, whether it's equal protection component, forbids that kind of discrimination. So in other words, whether Congress can just because someone lives in a territory, 
deny them benefits that otherwise would apply to them anywhere in the 50 states. And just to draw a line under that, SSI is readily available to U.S. citizens who live in the 50 states. Um, It helps millions of disabled, elderly, and low-income people. But as a result of this, about 300,000 Puerto Ricans who would qualify for SSI if they lived in the United States can't access this program. Is that right? That's that's exactly correct. That's exactly right. And so um, in its decision, deciding that, you know, it's perfectly fine (laughs) to uh, make this distinction, the court relied on what you alluded to earlier, a series of cases known as the insular cases. And so I would love for us to dig in a little bit on what are the insular cases. They're old, uh, so a lot of folks may not have heard of them. So maybe just a little bit of background on them before we dig into the harm they're doing. Sure. I'll I'll start, you know, I'll start by flagging that the court uh, actually did not did not necessarily address the insular cases, just as Gorsuch did in his concurrence. The court, in essence, said that Congress's power over the territories is is broad enough, and certainly uh, Congress can uh, do what it did here to classify uh, residents of the territories and say that they won't apply for uh, a nationally applicable benefit. But I'll I'll gladly jump in and and explain (laughs) the insular cases, which are sort sort of set the table for everything involving the territories. Um, And these are a series of decisions that the Supreme Court handed down at the start of the 20th century. Uh, Broadly speaking, the cases spoke on how the Constitution and federal laws would apply in in the territories that the United States had acquired from Spain um, at the end of the Spanish-American War. So back then we're talking Puerto Rico, Cuba, Guam and the Philippines. And these cases were at the time a huge deal because for the first time, the United States had acted to expand abroad. It had gone overseas. But, uh, and, and importantly, the, the islands that the United States now held were different. As I mentioned or referenced earlier, you know, they weren't populated by white settlers and there was little chance that they would ever be, or it was understood that there was little chance they would ever be because they were overseas. So there was a, a great deal of anxiety over whether the people who lived on these islands could or even should have certain rights? Would they be U.S. citizens? Did the United States have to make these island states of the union? And if the Constitution said yes to those questions, then maybe the United States shouldn't be in the business of expanding into overseas lands. In the insular cases, the Supreme Court essentially gives Congress and the national government a pass. Uh, The court comes up with a distinction Going forward, there will be incorporated territories and uh, those that are unincorporated. And the unincorporated territories like Puerto Rico were those that Congress hadn't said would become states. Now, two things are important here. The first is that the court was painfully clear on what it was doing and that it was coming up with this doctrine for racial reasons. The language of the insular cases is is frankly stomach churning at times. Uh, The justices or at least the justices in in what eventually became the majorities of these cases speak of fierce, savage people, restless people who are uh, unfit to receive citizenship. Chief Justice Taft in 1922, who had previously been President Taft in, in a 1922 opinion says that jury rights wouldn't apply in Puerto Rico because the people there lived in, in communities that were different from Anglo-Saxon institutions. So there's really no place to hide or, or as you know, Justice Gorsuch points out, it, it's painfully clear that this is what the court was doing. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing that's important to flag is that the Supreme Court 
in a way started walking this doctrine back pretty quickly, but didn't overrule it altogether. So by the 1950s, you start getting pluralities of the court saying that the insular cases at best said a few things don't apply in U.S. territories and, and the line should, should end there. And ever since, the court has every time the question of whether a constitutional provision applies in one of the territories, it has said that it does. Uh, but the problem is that the court didn't overrule the insular cases. And even pro more problematically, it has sort of half-heartedly cited them approvingly in later cases. So again, the lower courts continue to wrestle with this idea of, of what it means uh, uh, to for a certain constitutional provision to either apply or not in a given territory. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned uh, Justice Gorsuch's concurrence, um, and just by the nature of it being a concurrence, I think it would surprise people. You know, he voted with the majority in this case, but then wrote what what read to me is a pretty scathing takedown of the Insular cases and and kind of the precedent that's attached to those cases. I'm curious if you could explain a little bit about what you think is going on there and, and what it says about the dynamics of the court right now, where they're at. Sure. So I think the first thing to point out, of course, is the, the insular cases come up with this incorporation, unincorporation distinction, which is called the doctrine of territorial incorporation. That just sort of gets added to the general understanding of the territories that had been in place from the founding through 1901. So concurrence and the reason that he's still in the majority to say, listen, we can get rid of this distinction, this uh, racialized and offensive distinction. Um, and this case would still come out the same way it did because Congress just simply has the power to do what it's doing. So here through other means, we don't need this doctrine hanging around when we know all it does is stand for uh, very offensive and archaic reasons that have no place in the law. Mm -hmm. um, at oral argument, Justice Gorsuch surprised uh, many who were paying attention by coming out and asking the deputy solicitor general what the government's view of the insular cases was and asked, it, you know, if they were are wrongly decided, then why can't we just say what everyone knows to be true? So there was some hope that even if the worst happened, uh, which I'd say it did with an 8-1 ruling, that someone would still write against the insular cases. And, and that's exactly what Justice Gorsuch did. I think he hit, he hit it right on the head. He says the insular cases are dangerous because they rely on ugly racial stereotypes because they're impossible to apply consistently, that they deserve a long overdue reckoning. I, I don't I don't detect any lies in there. And it was a wonderful and forceful concurrence that and it was great to see for the first time a member of the court making such a full throated criticism of this this doctrine and of the insular cases. Yeah, I'm, you know, you wrote in an amicus brief uh, for a case that was not this one, but from the 2020 term that the insular cases, the doctrine involves, casts a pall on the rights of residents of Puerto Rico. I'm, I'm curious if you could dig in a little bit on, on how it directly is impacting the actual rights that people are able to exercise uh, for, for folks living on the island. Sure. So as I think I, I pointed to earlier, one of the, the things that happens with the insular cases is that because they're not overruled, they sort of get twisted in, in certain interesting ways. And some of the dicta that comes out of those decisions essentially says that certainly fundamental provisions of the Constitution apply in, in the 
uh, U.S. territories. Now, the justices that were saying that weren't speaking exclusively. They weren't saying that only fundamental provisions of the Constitution apply in the territories. But that, that's sort of how it's become refracted and twisted. So uh, when we say and when many uh, before us have said that, that these cases just continue to cast such a dark shadow and, and hover like a dark cloud, as Justice Breyer said at argument in, in 2019, the best way to, to point to that is whenever you have a issue of constitutional import in the lower federal courts, it's almost reflex for both litigants and for the courts to turn to the insular cases to see whether a certain provision or a certain right necessarily applies in the territory. That case that you mentioned in 2020 and 2019, that case involved the fiscal board that's overseeing Puerto Rico's finances. And it was a challenge against that board claiming that the uh, members of that board had been unconstitutionally nominated to their positions because they weren't subject to Senate confirmation. It was uh, a challenge under the uh, Constitution's Appointments Clause. And certain parties had said, listen, the Appointments Clause is not a, a fundamental constitutional provision, so it doesn't apply to Puerto Rico. The court rightly, in, a, in an opinion by Justice Breyer, set that aside and said, obviously, the Appointments Clause applies here. But the fact is that parties had relied on the insular cases at every step of the way until they got to the Supreme Court to say that it didn't. As for the specific rights of the people of Puerto Rico and other territories, I usually bring up the example of uh, a 2016 case where a district of Puerto Rico, a case was pending against a same-sex marriage ban in Puerto Rico when the Obergefell decision came down in, in the Supreme Court. And then there became this question of, well, does Obergefell get rid of this case also? The First Circuit said it did and sent the case back to the district court with uh, directions to enter dismissal for, for the plaintiffs because the, the Supreme Court had ruled in Obergefell that same-sex marriage was the law of the land. However, that district court still took it upon itself to look at the, the Obergefell decision through the insular cases and through this doctrine of territorial incorporation uh, and came out as saying that it did not apply to Puerto Rico because the Supreme Court had not itself said it did. Now, that got reversed very quickly. But again, uh, the rights of same-sex couples in, in Puerto Rico certainly lived under a shadow with that ruling. Uh, and another example is the Third Circuit just two years ago uh, ruled that, for example, anyone entering from any of the 50 states into the U.S. Virgin Islands can have their luggage, for example, searched without a warrant. And that wouldn't happen if you were traveling from any of the 50 states into any of the 50 states, or for that matter, into any of the other U.S. territories. But uh, the Third Circuit said that Congress can, because the United States Virgin Islands is an unincorporated territory, uh, decide that an international boundary divides the 50 states from the USVI for customs purposes. And in that way, again, the searches and seizures protections that most certainly, I would say, apply to people in the U.S. Virgin Islands are, are now in doubt.
You know, um, a quote from Justice Sotomayor's dissent in this case, because it was eight to one, there was one um, one lone dissent in this particular case. She noted that there's no rational basis for Congress to treat citizens living anywhere in the United States so differently from others. And as you give these examples, that's what comes to mind. It's just, it, it's such a disparate treatment on so many different facets of life. If you were surprised that she was alone in her dissent in that view, um, that there there's no rational basis for treating, in this particular case, needy citizens so differently than others. But in general, are you surprised that this case came down eight to one? And do you think that there are other votes to be had on, on similar cases in the future? Yes, it, it surprised me. It's, it's disappointing that there weren't more votes, um, for example, uh, for the notion that the equal protection must provide some limit to Congress when it legislates for, for the U.S. territories. Uh, what are the limits of that power? It's, it's hard to tell. As Justice Sotomayor explained, Puerto Rico's differential tax status just can't justify any and all unequal treatment of its residents. But as of now, we don't know. We don't know where that boundary is. Um, and it's disappointing that other justices didn't join her on that score, at least. At the very same time, it's disappointing, frankly, that uh, other justices in the majority didn't join Justice Gorsuch's uh, uh, concurrence. Because again, the court could have, as it did, come out the way it did without deciding the insular cases. Justice Gorsuch just makes the point if and when a case is squarely before this court that addresses those decisions, uh, I really hope we take it on. And then Justice Sotomayor, in a, a, a bit of an unusual move because she was writing in dissent, sort of signed on to Justice Gorsuch's concurrence in a footnote in her opinion. Yeah, I was struck by that too. You don't often see uh, someone writing in dissent being like, but also the concurrence makes points that I want to sign on to. It, it was an interesting mix of opinions that came out of this one. You're listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. This June, ACS members will be gathering for our annual national convention in Washington, D.C. After two years of virtual conventions, we are thrilled to be reconvening in person on June 16th through the 18th. This is an opportunity for lawyers, students, scholars, advocates, judges, and ACS allies to come together to celebrate and advance the progressive legal movement. Learn more about our national convention and RSVP today by going to acslaw.org backslash convention. Again, that's acslaw.org backslash convention. We hope to see you there. And now back to the conversation. You reference a future case that could take up these issues. I'm wondering if you could preview for us a case that has been working its way through the courts that deals with American Samoa and give us a sense of where that case is headed. Right. So uh, you're referring to uh, Fidi Samanu versus the United States. And yes. uh, again, uh, Justice Gorsuch called this case out by name. Uh, he, he cites it in his opinion, I think, four times. Uh, as an example of the damage, again, that the or or the way that the lower courts are still relying or feeling constrained to rely on the insular cases. Very interesting and important point. The Fidisimanu case has worked its way up from a district court in Utah to the Tenth Circuit, and is uh, the cert petition was filed today at the Supreme Court. Ah, so well, there so, you go, timely. So, <laughs> so it's it's uh, it's hard to to imagine that Justice Gorsuch didn't know what he was doing there um, <laughs> because it was yeah. it was obviously on the way. Um, yeah. And he and he obviously uh, was at the Tenth Circuit. So 
there's yeah. there's some interesting tea leaves to read there. But um, the Fidisimano case is it's probably the next step on whether on what to do about the insular cases. John Fidisimano, the plaintiff, was born on American Samoa. American Samoa is the one U.S. territory where people uh, who are born there are not U.S. citizens. They are uh, U.S. non-citizen nationals. And uh, Mr. Fidisimano moved to Utah, where even though he was born in a U.S. territory, he'd have to nat naturalize to even vote, for example. So the Fidisimanu case challenges the federal statute saying that people born in American Samoa aren't citizens because the 14th Amendment's citizenship clause says that everyone born in the United States is a, a U.S. citizen by birthright. So the plaintiff uh, won at the district court and then lost at the 10th Circuit. Um, and again, Justice Gorsuch called out this ruling as, as one of the examples that have gotten the insular cases wrong. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens with that petition, because obviously it certainly has Justice Gorsuch's vote. Justice Sotomayor agreed with that concurrence. So there's a second vote. The question is whether there's two others to take up the case. And then um, the insular cases is a territorial incorporation doctrine would be pretty squarely before the court. The reason that folks who uh, are born in American Samoa are not U.S. citizens is because of an act of Congress. Is that right? That's um, right. And, and a lot of these cases deal with the power of Congress to make these decisions. And one of the points that you brought up in a previous brief that I found particularly compelling is these folks also don't have representatives in Congress. You know, they're, they are being governed by bodies that are that are dictating and limiting um, their, their access to rights as U.S. citizens or their access to be a U.S. citizen without a voice in that process. And so I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about that disconnect um, and, and that power dynamic that's going on. For sure. I, and I think you probably speaking of the brief, the ACLU and, and some uh, allies filed in, in this case that recently came down in the Biomadero decision. And, and that brief took particular issue with the government's argument that the U.S. government was arguing that the proper way to cure the unequal treatment that was hurting Mr. Madero and thousands of others like him was to take that grievance to Congress. It's a pretty basic tenet of equal protection doctrine that the first place to turn for um, to cure a legislative harm is the legislature. So that makes sense. But that claim here ran into the problem uh, at the heart of the United States relationship with its territories. And that's a, the, the residents of the U.S. territories have no say in electing the Congress that passes discriminatory laws against them. So, you know, here it's it's important to be to be careful because the people who live in U.S. territories have a basic right, a human right to self-determination. But under equal protection doctrine and under uh, U.S. domestic law, when political processes are not working, it's understood that uh, courts are a recourse for, for those people under equal protection principles. So we said that this was a, a paradigmatic example of that principle, just like in previous cases, Congress couldn't pass laws that kept resident non-citizens out of civil service just because they were non-citizens. The court in those cases stressed that legislatures still can't target people because they are locked out of the political process. So we were saying this is a quintessential case of insiders 
discriminating against out- outsiders. The lawyers uh, who are listening will think back to Caroline products and, and footnote four. And this is a theme that Justice Sotomayor touched upon in her in her dissent. For those who may not be lawyers or for those like me who haven't looked at Caroline products in a long time, would you mind taking just a minute to explain what's, what's at play there? Sure. So, uh, and you're asking me to, to even think that, <laughs> but, but Caroline products ends up being a pretty seminal case as far as uh, what kind of review and what level of deference the courts are going to give acts of Congress. It comes up in, in the middle of the New Deal, I believe. And yes. where um, where it ends up is saying that laws that speak to financial matters, to economic matters, will generally get a very deferential level of, of review. The court is going to defer to the legislature on those issues. But somewhat famously, I believe it's Justice uh, Stone, uh, and, you know, the lawyers can correct me if not, I'm sure I'll hear about it. But uh, 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 drops a, a footnote, a famous footnote, footnote four, which speaks to the fact that when laws target what he calls discrete and insular minorities, and by insular there, you know, it, it's a pun that works here a little too on the nose, but he was, <laughs> he was uh, uh, speaking particularly about people or or classes or groups that are in a way, kept out of the political process that enacted it, that that resulted in what would enact those laws. Um, in those cases, the court will give uh, a more searching or a more um, uh, certainly a more rigorous scrutiny. This ends up being the basis for the levels of the tiers of scrutiny that the courts use. If it's if you know if a suspect class if it's not something that uh calls out race or affects race or uh religion or ethnicity for example uh the court will generally be very deferential to that law but if there's uh but if it does implicate those classes then the tier the so-called level of scrutiny goes up uh, eventually the highest you can get is something called strict strict scrutiny where where the law has to be very well tailored to affect the harm that the legislature is trying to address. And so really what we're looking at here is these are acts of Congress, but it's the court who gets to decide really how strict they're going to be in reviewing those cases. And and at the end of the day, it's the court who's been really guiding, or I should say setting the guardrails on, on what Congress can and cannot do when it comes to the territories. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And I and that's why I say it was is disappointing for sure to see Via Madero come out the way it did. But yeah. it was certainly disappointing to see no more uh, o- only Justice Sotomayor speak to the notion that the equal protection component of the Fifth Amendment should provide a more robust guardrail, if you will, against differential treatment. In your Brief from the 2020 case, uh, the financial oversight case, you say that the precedent from the insular cases is no less offensive than the separate but equal doctrine established in Plessy versus Ferguson and obviously was overturned in the 1965 case Brown versus Board of Education. Can you elaborate a little on why this is the appropriate comparison to keep in mind when thinking about the insular cases? So just like the the separate separate but equal, just as a phrase, <laughs> tried to sanitize 
deeply racist views and constitutionalize discrimination. Well, that's exactly what this distinction between incorporation and unincorporation does. Uh, on its face, it's not necessarily offensive that to say that something is an incorporated or unincorporated territory, but very close below the surface of those words, you just have to account for the fact that the only reason the court came up with this distinction is because, again, the United States found itself in a new place where it hadn't been before, where it had annexed lands that were peopled by people who just were different or were understood to be different. They were uh, a Black, Brown, Hispanic, Pacific Islanders, and most of them didn't speak Spanish. So it came up with this fork in the road of whether something would be incorporated or unincorporated in a way to not get in the way of the United States having uh, possessions, having possessions abroad. But both separate but equal and territorial incorporation essentially set up racially segregated systems of civic membership. Certain rights apply to some and others to others because of the color of, the, of their skin. And it's not said, it's not there in the title. Territorial incorporation doctrine by itself doesn't necessarily uh, uh, scream something offensive, but it's well known that this is what was happening, what was going on, and what's driving that distinction. Again, as Justice Gorsuch makes very, very clear in his pretty scathing concurrence. Yeah, I do not often find myself telling people you should go and read the full Gorsuch opinion <laughs> on any particular case, but this is one, right? You know, and and I think maybe it's his time in the Tenth Circuit or or other experience, but you know, it, the territories and also issues of uh, tribal land and Indian law seem to to get his attention in a way that um, that is encouraging, at least uh, that that breaks out of this traditional six three that we've been seeing out of the court. I'm curious what you think in terms of uh, what you'd like to see going forward, what reform you would like to see, whether that be legislative or court doctrine, moving forward in terms of the way that Puerto Rico is treated and its legal status and uh, and the way that is treated by Congress. Right. Well, legislatively, it's 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 a pretty easy fix. For example, the the, the SSI program that was at issue in the Valle Madero case, Congress could fix that tomorrow if it if it wanted to. And there were calls to have it uh, in the Build Back Better bill last year. And I think those got pretty far along before um, it got pulled out. So obviously something that would be easy to say and should be easy to fix is that Congress should not treat Puerto Rico and the, the other territories differently just because it can, especially not when it comes to programs that are designed to help the most vulnerable among uh, the, the most vulnerable wherever they may live, Puerto Rico and and many of the other territories have gone through uh, some very hard years in terms of, of austerity and financial hardship and the poverty levels in Puerto Rico. I, I think Justice Sotomayor, again, points to them in her dissent are triple that of the, the poorest of the 50 states. So if Congress is passing a law that is precisely designed to help people who need help, then it certainly shouldn't cut out the people who need it most. As far as the court, like I said, the, the, this Fidi Simano case is working its way up and apparently just worked its way up today. So it'll be very interesting what happens with that petition. 
is your hope given the court's current makeup that they take that up that they they take up the opportunity to to fully and squarely address the problem of insular cases i i yes i think well first of all that is my hope and i think that well first of all you you have two votes already so that's great the what you're left with frankly at the end of the day is a doctrine that is not only nowhere in the constitution uh, and and everyone admits that everyone who engages with it admits that because the notion of incorporated and unincorporated territories did not exist before 1901 until the supreme court came up with it but so it's not just not in the constitution it's built on racial on ugly racial stereotypes as justice gorsuch called them uh it is designed to at the end of the day give the national government much more uh, and broader powers than were generally understood that the government had until then. These are all things that I think um, even the current court or the current court with its current makeup would be very clearly against uh, notions, again, that the national government could act with very little restraint. And again, a doctrine not rooted in any possible way in the text of the Constitution uh, that's at the end of the day, why I think it was so easy for Justice Gorsuch to come in so hard against it. And, and it would be exciting to see what happens if it, if it gets up to the Supreme court. Yeah. There, there's no originalist case to be made <laughs> for, for the answer, uh, cases and certainly not a textual one, as you mentioned. I'm curious for listeners who are interested in taking action on on this set of issues, you know, on the unequal protection of the laws afforded Puerto Ricans and other territorial residents. Are there actions that listeners can take that could help here? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I don't have any anything immediately come to mind. I, I, I think, the, frankly, the easiest way to answer that question is to educate uh, themselves and, and see yeah. those issues, for example, uh, not think of the people who live on the in the territories as as the people who live far away in distant lands as we were thinking about it 120 years ago they are most of them us citizens and it's it's too easy for the answer to be that just because it doesn't affect me i won't care about it if the united states has a, a problem in that it still has these possessions 120 years after the fact, uh, these very undemocratic possessions, then that's a problem for all of us because it's a policy that the government of the United States has followed in, in our name. So I, I would encourage uh, people to take, if you care about any of these issues, be them be they poverty, be they uh, voting rights, be they civil rights writ large, it, you should care about those issues in the U.S. territories as well. A great place for us to land. Adriel, thank you so much for joining the show to discuss all of this. And thank you for your tremendous work on these issues. Thank you to our listeners for finding Broken Law. Please be sure to follow and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. If you have ideas for future episodes, let us know. You can email us at podcast at acslaw.org or find us on social media at acslaw. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law whose interest it serves and whose it does not.